I think it was in the late 1990s, Hewlett Packard um, HP, the giant tech, was developing a very specific kind of chip with Intel at the time. I think it was called Itanium or something like that. So they are both companies with great experience and expertise in the hardware industry in Silicon Valley. But they didn't have enough expertise in the software, how, how to create software to run this microprocessor, this chip, right? So then came Oracle, who is another giant in the software database management system, and they came and offered help. We are here to help you. Let's do business together, because we are good at software, and you're good at hardware. Let's make this happen. And right after signing that contract, they realized that Oracle apparently had other agenda to enter into the hardware industry. They were using this as a way to get into that and to, uh, and to eventually what happened was they stopped, Oracle after signing the contract, they stopped creating the software and as a result, the HP couldn't sell the hardware they produced and it affected their reputation. A lot of things happened and then they realized that the Oracle CEO or the founder, Larry Ellison, had a personal feud with, uh, with some of the HP directors. All of this eventually unveiled and there was a couple decade long legal battle and recently HP was awarded $3 billion lawsuit or something like that, uh, reward or something like that. Now, the reason I'm saying this, there is a phrase quite common used in the secular culture. They call it sleeping with the enemy, right? And it's, a, it's quite crass for a church, so I, I just used dancing with the devil. It's the same thing, you know? <laughs> because devil loves to dance, right? Devil is not confrontational. Devil is a nice guy if you really know him. He is not confrontational. He is not coming here to attack you and kill you, and that's all there, but he always invites you to dance. Garden of Eden. He invited the lady to dance. He had the best intention of her in his mind, at least the way the story unfolds. And in the New Testament, when he comes to Jesus, he is inviting Jesus to dance. Jesus, I know, this is important, I feel, I feel for you, you're hungry, first get something to eat. I know you want to take over, I know you want to save the world, let's do it together. Now that is dancing, right? And there needs to be a divine discernment when you choose this opportunities that are presented to us. Anyway, the reason I'm saying is that at this point in our story of Ezra, as we are going through, that is where we find ourselves in. So would you stand with us, with me for the reading of the word? We are going to read from Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 all the way to 5. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel. 
they approached Zerubbabel, the head of the father's households, and said to them, let us build this with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Eshardon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is the word of the Lord. As you know, we are on a new series called Return and Rebuild. In the post-exilic period, the Lord is inviting Israel to come back and rebuild the temple of God. And the catch is, as you heard from the last couple of weeks, it is not going to be the same temple, but it is going to be something dramatically different. Last week we saw that in the temple, we only see the altar, not the ark. The temple was conceived for housing the ark, but in the new temple, the ark is not present, only altar. Now, this is a new model in which the Lord is going to build his church in the post-COVID season, I strongly believe. You see here is the altar where you, we sacrifice ourselves, we give ourselves unto the Lord, but then we go outside, as I said last week, Indiana Jones going, looking for the lost ark. I am sending you from Monday to Saturday as raiders of the lost ark because the ark is hidden in the neighborhood. If you came here looking for the ark, the presence of God, sorry, I may have to disappoint you. God is already present in Arcadia and Glendale and Burbank. You did not have to come here. Our job is to make his presence visible. So the model I gave you, that picture, if, uh, if that come up, the, the new model in which we are, yes, the church is going to be a Tesla station. Sunday, you are not coming to do church. Sunday, you are coming here to rest. My job is to charge you. That big money you are paying me, you know, that, that's all, all that money you are putting in the, in the basket is for you to get charged. Lake Avenue Church in the new season will be a charging station which will create resources, which will really encourage and edify each other so that you can go from Monday to Saturday will be your church. Sunday is the day of rest. It's your Sabbath. And the rest of the day, we do church in the neighborhood. So that's why we strongly encourage you to join a missional community. As uh, our, our brother Eric Sanders said, now I'm going to give you one more opportunity to do that. Uh, if you have that, yes. So if you haven't done this already, 
we have almost 650 texts that came in. That is incredible. So we know where you are. So this is also helping us to minister to you. Who are our core community? How can we reach out to you? So that text number you see and you identify your region, all you need to do is just to text that number. And we are already planning to do some events with the three core themes. I hope you remember, pray together, serve together, and celebrate together. In each of this community, we are going to have separate events to do this together so that we can live in community. Not here on a Sunday to watch a performance on a, uh, 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 like, a, like a King Solomon's temple. It was all about the senior pastor. It was that mega church. No, this is a very different church where we are going to build. This is our call in the new season. I hope not only Lake Avenue Church, the church all over the world would know this and uh, try to implement this. Now, this part of the story, they started rebuilding the temple. Immediately, the people in the neighborhood, they are actually called Samaritans. And now this is kind of where the origin of the Jews and Samaritans come up. I'll, I'll explain the history a little bit here. But they come with an offer, right? They're not there to intimidate them. They say, hey, let's do it together. The enemy is now coming with that offer, almost like Oracle gave that offer to HP, right? Let's do this together. Let's, let's combine our expertise together. After all, we are all in Silicon Valley. After all, we are worshiping the same God. Let's do it together. And then the Israelite says, no, no, we are not worshiping the same God. Now, why is that? So let me give you some history lesson. You'll, you'll thank me for it later. Because, <laughs> see... When you read the gospel, we always, always see this, this, this um, inherent uh, conflict between Jews and Samaritans, right? It's almost like the arch enemies, like Jews and the Samaritans. And it's Samaritans are the worst kind of people, the way it is portrayed in the gospel, the way the culture operated at that the, the time. Now, do you know who the Samaritans really are? So not a lot of people know. So Samaritan, here is actually sort of the origin of Samaritans. Now Samaritans technically are the brothers of Jewish people. They are from the 10 tribes of Israel originally. As you know, Israel had 12 tribes, you remember? Out of which 10 of the tribes settled in the northern part of Israel. We call it the northern kingdom of Israel. Then two tribes, predominantly Judah and Benjamin, settled in the southern part or closer to Jerusalem, right? So, so this was the division, like the ten, uh, ten tribes made the northern kingdom and two tribes made the southern kingdom. Now around 722 B.C., 722 B.C., the Assyrian kings came and captured the whole northern kingdom. They made them captives. The, the, ten, trob, the, the ten tribes, right? The, the northern kingdom, not the southern kingdom. So the southern kingdom was overtaken by Babylonian, as we saw before, somewhere around 500 uh, and so, so BC. So almost 200 years later. Now when they came, the Assyrians came and captured the northern kingdom, 
what happened was they did something really notorious. They did not just kill them and destroy them, but they did an intentional inculturation of these 10 tribes. What they did was they took some of them to Assyria, but they also brought some of the other people into that area, and they made sure that these two people inter, intermingled, intermarried. A new kind of tribe emerged out of this. So this is why in the Jewish vocabulary, you probably hear this term, the lost tribes of Israel. It has multiple connotations of it. But these 10 tribes are considered lost. Not just they are physically lost, because their blood got mixed, and which is a big crime, theological crime in the Jewish understanding, right? So these 10 lost tribes whose blood was, was uh, you know, uh, how do you say that? Spoiled in a way by the, by the inculturation, these people are generally called Samaritans. They live there. They are technically brothers, but they are arch enemies. And this is very common in different parts of the world where I'm coming from India. And Indian and Pakistanis, as you probably know, they, we are arch enemies. We are, we are taught to hate each other. But in reality, we are brothers. We are of the same blood in a way. We are the same kind of people in some way, same kind of race and ethnicity. But there is that hatred. Because one, fact, one faction thinks that the other faction is impure for whatever reason, right? Coming back to, so this is kind of the origin of Samaritans. Now, I just want to read you the story, okay? Uh, I'll tell you why. So the origin story of Samaritans is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 24. The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kuta and from Ava and from Hamath and from Sepharim and settled them in the cities of Samaria in place of the sons of Israel. Just like I mentioned, you know, he brought in these different nations. Did you count how many nations? Five of them, right? Now the five nations were brought in. And now if you read further down, it says 2 Corinthians 17, 29 to 33, but every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the houses of the high places which the people of Samaria had made, every nation in their cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benath. Okay, so Babylonians brought their god, that's his name, Sukkoth Benath, and the men of Kut made uh, Nergal, the men of Hamad made Ashima, and the Abavites made Nibas and Chartak, and Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adamalek and Anamalek, the gods of Sepharvim. Now, there's a reason why I'm reading it. All you need to get is that the five different nations were brought into Samaria, and all these five different nations brought five different types of God, okay? Then the next verse says, they also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places who acted them in the house of the high, high places. They feared the Lord and served their own God. Okay? So they have these five different nations bringing five kinds of God, but they also loved the Lord of the Bible. 
They also feared the Lord, and they appointed priests. They built churches around them while also keeping these other five gods and other these five factions for themselves, five cults, religious cults for themselves. Now, the reason I, I, I made all this effort to say this is there is an interesting episode which, I, which you read in the gospel. John chapter 4, Jesus is sitting by the well. Then there, the Samaritan woman comes up, right? Everybody knows that story. Even if you are not a Christian, you know that story because such a popular story from the Bible. And you know, there is, you can see that conflict. And he, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. Can you give me something to drink? And the Samaritan woman said, "Hey, yeah, but I'm a Samaritan. You are a Jew. I can believe that you're asking me for drink. And you can see that friction, right? And then there is a point in that story, you remember, uh, Jesus said, I'm going to give you the living water and all that. And Jesus, uh, then the woman says, yeah, I like to get some water too. Can you give me the living water? Then Jesus says something very bizarre. Do you remember? Okay, this is how it goes. John chapter 4, 16 to 18. John chapter 4, 16 to 18. This is what Jesus said. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. I'm like, what in the world is that? That completely out of context. We are talking about living water here. Husband? And the lady says, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Then Jesus said to her, very interesting. You have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Now, I have no doubt about the fact that Jesus is really talking about this woman having five husbands and all true. But a group of scholars believe that it, at least I find it intriguing that Jesus made that comment that you have had five husbands, but now you have the, the, the so-called another husband, and you are right, he is not really your husband. So a, a way to look at it is what Jesus is not just talking, what Jesus is not just talking to the Samaritan woman, Jesus is actually talking to the whole Samaria. You have had five husbands, all these five nations, and the five gods that brought up. Along with that, you brought your sixth husband too. Yahweh, the Lord, yes, we will worship the Lord, just like Zerubbabel and Joshua the priest, but he is not your husband. Yes, lady, what you said is right. Not only in your life, but also in the life of your country, you are right. You have had five husbands. The one you have right now is not uh, your real husband. Now, the, I couldn't help but think that I, as you know, I'm an outsider to America. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, I'm an outsider everywhere now, I feel. But I've been, <laughs> I've been to churches. I've been actively associating with churches in the East, in the Middle East, in the Western world. One complaint, what I, what I have observed the Western churches in particular, this is poignant as you say you're here, what is happening in Europe and that is about to happen to America is that we have had some of these husbands at home we are dancing with. Oh, today you're dancing with Jesus, no doubt about that. But this is not your real husband. There are five of them 
at home you're dancing with. I just wanted to quickly, man, I don't have time, but uh, this is my observation, my personal observation of the five husbands of Western churches, okay? Let me read through it really quickly. One that I haven't seen with the Eastern churches as opposed to I see in Western church, when you minister in Western church. One is the, that husband of scientific rationalism. See, in, in the Western world, we are taught that the reality is understood only by scientific methodologies and empirical observations. That has infiltrated into the church's understanding too. It is very common in evangelical churches, people sitting in the pew and worshiping the Lord, but they wouldn't necessarily believe in virgin birth, for example, because that doesn't fit into our scientific rationalistic understanding. There are pastors who don't believe in the literal resurrection. They say it's a metaphorical thing. Jesus didn't really have to physically resurrect. And the reason they are saying that is because their mind is so conditioned by dancing with this devil we call scientific rationalism. There is, a, there is a place for that. But if you are coming to church and you say there is no supernatural thing possible, it is all can be understood by natural, natural framework, then you came to the wrong place. Seriously. God, by definition, is supernatural. So if you are coming here and insist that everything should make sense with your rationalistic framework, this is, you're wasting your time. There's football out happening right now. Seriously. Don't waste your time in the church if you're not believing in the element of God's intervention into the middle of this naturalistic universe. That's what we call faith. I don't have time to stay here. Second husband we have at home is what I call secular humanism. See, even the worst enemies of the church love the church for the amazing charitable work we do. Churches have increased relevance in the society. Even the atheists say, because the churches run soup kitchens, we do homeless shelters, good for you. That's the kind of the things the church, churches should do. Of course we do. Of course we do even more, like Eric said today. We do even more than just running soup kitchen. But if we think that is the purpose of the church, we have serious problem. The church is a body which is called to preach Christ crucified. Somebody died. God intervened in this universe. He has opened a new way to a new life. If you don't preach that good news, everything else we do is part of our, it is a product of this purpose we live out. Our purpose is to preach the good news. When we preach the good news, the product will automatically flow out of it. And we do that. We are not against it. But it is quite common in evangelical churches how people have become so obsessed with the charitable work and they, to the extent that they forget, well, you know, preaching Jesus, you know, that's kind of old-fashioned kind of stuff. Now that is one, another husband. <laughs> now the third husband, 
I would call political ideology. Now, this is the good thing about countries like India and China, by the way, the emerging economies, ready to take over the world. You know, one of the reasons they are growing, the churches are at the churches in these churches are in these countries are also growing. The last thing you hear from the pulpit is politics. Of course, the Communist Party probably is one of the most oppressive regimes in, in the world. But the pastors don't go and try to overthrow the communist regime. That's not what they do. In India, Hindu fundamentalists are ruling there. They are killing every Christians they can find, but the pastors are going and creating marches and protests against the Hindu fundamentalists. That's not what they do. Because they have a bigger boss who can control all these regimes like a puppet. Because the king of the universe is not Chinese party or the, or the Hindu fundamentalists, but they believe in the supernatural power of the king of kings. And that's what they connect to. And that's why the churches are growing. That's why Jesus didn't care about overthrowing Roman regime. One of the reasons he got crucified, because people were expecting he is going to, to organize a protest, he is going to organize a war, something is going to really happen. No, but God, Jesus had a bigger agenda. It is so unfortunate in this country. On one side, we have too much of a national pride. And on the other side, there is an American hatred within the Americans. And this is the only country I've heard, patriot is a word that is almost like used as a traitor. If you say you're a patriot, you're almost going to, oh my goodness. This is so unfortunate. We are all guilty as charged. So we need to remember that this political ideology, the husband we are dancing with, in the end, this is going to be, turn out to be a big disaster. Let me go quickly. The fourth one, I want to say materialistic ideology, materialistic theology. When I say this, you're naturally thinking, oh, I know this prosperity theology that infiltrated in America, the corporate understanding of the greed and the money, and if you're not rich, then you're not blessed. If you're suffering from some financial difficulties or health, uh, you know, uh, sickness and all that, you are really cursed by God, and this understanding has infiltrated. I understand this is what we call prosperity theology. But that's not just it, though. That's not just it. See, what a materialistic theology does, and prosperity theology is a classic example, is to distract or divert our attention from the spiritual to the physical. That's what happened, right? The blessings which God has presented to us is, is spiritual, out of which the physical will emerge. But prosperity theology very successfully diverted our attention from spiritual to physical. Now, almost everybody with some common sense know this is all garbage. But there are different kind of materialistic theologies emerge. This is why I spend my all summer talking about the, the understanding of, if you go to seminaries, if you go to some of these academic platforms, they always talk about the theology of the body. Theology of race. Of course, these are important. That's why, like I said, I spend my whole summer on it. But somehow, there is a deeper agenda 
and to divert our attention all about our body. Our identity is defined based on how we look, how our gender. No, the Bible very clearly says there is no male, female. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. There is no free. There is no slave. We are all born again, a new creation in Christ. But there is this intentional, there is an intention, almost ominous, Interest in diverting our attention to what is physical. Oh, our identity is defined by our gender. Our identity is defined by our race. Yes, there is an element of truth to that. But when you come to church, this is a place that transcends all that identity so that we can focus on something supernatural in whom our identity comes singular. We become one in Christ. We are not just being, being united, but we become one in Christ. So, so materialistic theology has multiple dimensions. Again, I want you to hear this. There is a balance. That's why I said devil always dances. There is truth to every single element of what I said, but it is how you do dance. There are some people who dance very well. I don't discourage them, but quite often, at the end of the dance, we are dragged into the pit with the enemy. That's almost always what happens. So I'm cautioning you. The last one is very easy for us to understand. It is called uh, a corporate structure. Now, Lake Avenue knows this more than anybody else. Almost 60% of my time is spent on check, you know, doing checkbox of our structures, right? Like, you know, these are important because this country has given us absolutely amazing privilege of running a church and we get tax receipt for every donation we make. You go to India, you go to China, nobody gives you tax receipt. So we have to be accountable in a way unlike in some other countries, but sometime the administration can drive ministry. As long as the ministry drives the administration, that's fine. But some, quite often the roles reverse, particularly in a congregational church where everybody has the say and everybody, everybody's opinion count. The point I'm trying to make is, at the end of the day, as important as all of this is, I want us to have a self-reflection, if possible, at this moment. How many husbands do you have? The question Jesus asked. Oh, I know, you came with Jesus today. I'm asking the other husbands. How many of the devils are we dancing with? I'm not discouraging you to enter into unknown territories and explore what God is doing out there. Actually, they had no problem collaborating with the Persian king, Cyrus. The whole thing was started by a Gentile, right? And even in the Old Testament, Solomon's one of the big allies was King Haram. So there is nothing wrong with partnering with and participating in the life of people outside the church. The problem is the is Samaritans. The problem is they are half, there is always a half truth. They are half breed. Now that is where we have to be very, very careful. So the Lord is asking us to exercise divine discernment in anything we do, whether it is inside the church or outside the church. 
We don't say no, we don't say no to other people with some kind of a, a, a self-righteous arrogance or pride. That's not what I'm talking about. But there is a way to feel where the Lord is leading us in all of these five areas I mentioned. None of this, that what I said, is not in a condemnation on itself. I am a person of science, and I am a person, I'm a, I'm a, I always consider myself a humanist, a Christian humanist in that sense. All that aspect, all that is wonderful, but it's quite important for us to know that where the dance stops. Now, as I close in prayer, I also feel, I also feel that personally, there are some unbuilt temples in your life. God has given you a mission. God has shown you a vision. But the enemies came. They approached you in various ways. The vision got thwarted and confused. And eventually, you abandoned it. And God wants to resurrect it today. As we read on in Ezra chapter 5, the temple construction delayed for another 16 years because they danced. That enemy came and they attacked in different ways. 16 years of delay in the temple construction. But the Lord brought it back again. In that time, God sent two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. These two prophets came and gave them the word of God, gave them the necessary encouragement, and God used their ministry to rebuild the temple again after the delay. So in the next few weeks, we are going to take a detour from the book of Ezra. We are going to look at Haggai and Zechariah because it is contextual. So we will be going back and then coming back to Ezra. The point is that the unbuilt temples in your life, the Lord wants to rebuild. Almost feel like a prophetic encounter as I'm speaking. And Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Gates of hell cannot prevail against us. No enemy can destroy what God has kindled in you if you surrender yourself. If you rekindle the vision the Lord has given to you, God is going to send you the right prophets, the right priests to come along and fulfill the vision and the dream that the Lord has already planted in you. Let's pray. Father God, here we are at the altar we offer everything we have, not just our money, not just our experience and expertise, everything we have. We pray that you take it and you shape it into your image and into your likeness. Lord, rekindle that dreams that you have placed in us, many of us. We carried that dream. We were excited to get up in the morning because you asked us to go somewhere, but eventually we thought that is not possible. Because the enemy attacked us softly, but then vigorously. Now we've given up the dream. We have given up our mission. We are not excited about this anymore. Lord, would your Holy Spirit rekindle. Lord, would you send the right kind of Haggai's and Zechariah's in our midst so that we will really know what the will of God is and we will also have the courage to return and rebuild. In Jesus' name. Amen.